Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, a new chief of staff for the Defense Information Systems Agency. She's worked at several agencies, uh, including DISA before and DISA's White House Communications Agency. The weather isn't the only thing getting colder in Washington. It's impossible to find anybody who knows much about what's going on who would not agree with the fact that we are now in a new Cold War with China. And you listen to the Deputy Secretary Kath Hicks, uh, Secretary Austin, and everybody else. This is the focal point, and it is all about technology. And staying on guard in a new world of remote work. I wouldn't be surprised if at some point some breach happens that gets headlines. I wouldn't be surprised if there already have been some breaches that haven't gotten headlines. It's Friday, December 3rd, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The State Department's Zero Trust push is helping its data center closure effort, too, according to the agency's chief information officer. Keith Jones says moving data to the clouds, cutting the department's risk exposure in high-risk areas overseas. Jones spoke at Thursday's Security Transformation Summit presented by FedScoop. The Office of the Chief Information Officer at the Pentagon will hire new deputy directors to improve electromagnetic spectrum management. The executive performing the duties of the Chief Information Officer, Kelly Fletcher, says spectrum is one of the, quote, seven things I pay close attention to. The department will launch a spectrum sharing test at Hill Air Force Base in Utah soon. The Defense Information Systems Agency has a new chief of staff. Jackson Barnett's writing about it for fedscoop.com. Jackson, welcome. Who is Teresa Pitts and where did she come from? Welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, Teresa Pitts is an Air Force veteran and a longtime defense civilian. She has worked at several agencies, uh, including DISA before and DISA's White House Communications Agency, which handles the most sensitive communications for the president and vice president. What does her assignment have to do, if anything, with the reorganization that you reported on a couple of weeks ago? Well, she comes after the reorganization was instituted, so she wasn't necessarily a part of the decision-making process for it. But being the chief of staff, she has uh, incredible you know, power and insight over how the organization will use kind of their new structure um, since she's in charge of implementing policy and managing people. Uh, she's going to be working with kind of the new leaders and she will be in charge of, you know, making sure that the director's policy are implemented across the new organization. The director of DISA, Lieutenant General Robert Skinner, you reported a while ago, wanted to flatten the organization with that reorganization. Do we have a sense yet of how that will play out and what that will look like and the timeline on which that reorganization has happened or will happen, Jackson? Well, things have already uh, been put in place and, and things are, you know, are changes, changes afoot, one could say. Uh, the new centers, they're called, uh, it, it's gone from two centers, which were essentially focused one on business and one on operations to, to four centers, each with their own specific technical piece of the DISA puzzle. Uh, those changes have been made, they are in place. And, uh, you know, one of the things we can look at when it comes to, to cloud uh, there is a new cloud office that has its own center. So that has elevated cloud's insight and the cloud's uh, space within the DISA landscape. Sharon Woods of that office was uh, on the current edition of uh, Let's Talk About IT, the podcast that our colleague Billy Mitchell hosts. You can see that at fedscoop.com. We have a link to it in today's show notes. DISA has been doing cloud for a number of years now. 
And it strikes me that with the controversy over Jedi now behind us, JWCC in place and and the department taking bids, this is positioned to become even more important in the department's cloud dialogue, I imagine. That's a fair estimation on my part. That's fair. That's fair. It's It'd be all speculation as to how much Jedi played a role in this, um, but it's fair to say that cloud is uh, certainly important and growing in importance both at DISA and in DOD. Jackson Barnett, thanks very much. Great reporting as always. Thanks. You can read more about all these headlines and lots of other stories at fedscoop.com. The Biden administration's choice to take the Pentagon's top acquisition job is an experienced hand. Bill LaPlante will take the undersecretary for acquisition and sustainment job if the Senate confirms him. Stan Soloway is president and CEO of Solero Strategies. He's former deputy undersecretary of defense for acquisition reform. Stan, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. Bill ran acquisition at the Air Force for a number of years in the Obama administration. Knows what he's doing about acquisition in the Defense Department. What do you see as he becomes the nominee for this job and uh, gets ready for Senate confirmation? Welcome. Thanks. Great to be here, Francis. Um, so there's there's a few things. One is it's it's an interesting appointment, and I say this in a positive sense, but it is very different than, than the initial appointment. Mike Brown was the initial nominee. He had to withdraw. Mike Brown, his only experience really in the government was running the Defense Innovation Unit. Bill LaPlante comes out of a, what you might call a more traditional background, but he has deep expertise, not just, and I think this is important to what he might do in the job, is not just as the head of acquisition for the Air Force, but he was a key member of what was called the Section 809 panel. This was the the congressionally chartered commission that did a massive report a couple of years ago on really trying to get the next level of major reform done uh, in in, in acquisition of the Defense Department. And he was a key member of that. So Mm -hmm. he comes in with that as his really his last experience, which is working with a group of of really terrific experts on looking at what do we have to do to move forward. So with that as, as as a construct, you know, and again, this is all speculative because you never know what people are going to do once they get into office, but Bill has a track record. Um, I think what we're looking at and what I'm going to be very interested to see is how much of that Section 809 experience really informs and maybe has changed any of his views uh, as he comes into the to the top job in OSD. Um, again, not to say he didn't do a great job in Air Force, it's just you don't know how that changes. And that's particularly important in if you think in terms of both, both the Mike Brown uh, boomlet that didn't work, and and what what level of focus we're going to have on things like alternative acquisition paths, other transactions, and and other ways to really finally try to break the seal that is continues to envelop the Pentagon and 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 bar, and keep it from getting to all the, the the commercial capabilities. It sounds like what you're saying is acquisition in the department is dramatically different than it was in 2017, and it remains to be seen if Bill's dramatically different than what he did in 2017. Am, am I on the well, right track I, I, there? I, yeah, yes, sort of. I mean, I, I think the latter part definitely, um, and it's not to imply that he wasn't didn't do a good job in right, 2017. Right, I, I want to um, be clear about I, that. I don't too. know if I'd say it's radically different. I think the rec- I, I and I, I think I, what I would say is. I believe, and it may be that I drink my own Kool-Aid too much, but I think that there's a greater recognition of the need for some really significant change. And I see this on the Hill. As you know, I recently did a report on other transactions authorities. Um, as When I briefed the Hill staff, contrary to what I was told to expect, which was they're getting frustrated. If things go bad, they're just going to pull the authority. They were not. That's not where they are. They are. How do we push this forward? How do we push this forward? So the energy behind change and innovation is greater than it's been at any point in my career, mm-hmm. let alone four and a half years ago when he when he was there before. So that's that's one question. 
The other, the other part of the the, 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 the dynamic here is, and this, this is sort of me sitting back as somebody who's been around the Pentagon for 30 years now, Frank Kendall's the Secretary of the Air Force. He was the, the undersecretary when Bill LaPlante was the under, was the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for acquisition. Yeah. Andrew Hunter is the nominee to be the Assistant Secretary for acquisition, Bill LaPlante's old job. Andrew was Frank's chief of staff, essentially, in, in OSD. So yeah. now you have this interesting reversal of roles. And what happened in the meantime is that they that we have what we call the big divorce, where they, they broke up the acquisition technology and logistics job. Uh, into the research and engineering and acquisition sustainment and devolved a tremendous amount of authority back to the services. So, so Bill having come from the services is now an OSD. Frank having come from, this, from OSD is now in the services. I think it's going to be interesting to see if we see any change. I mean, you would think it would portend well because they both know both places now and, and they obviously have a good relationship. Um, but that's going to be an interesting dynamic. What I think is, yes, I agree with all of that. What I think is the most significant there, though, is I, I had Frank on Government Matters a bunch of times when he was out of the building during the Trump administration. Right. And if there was a common theme among all of the things that we talked about, it was acquisition is changing, acquisition continues to need to change, and if we're going to meet specifically the threat of the current national defense strategy and what will probably be the way the threat landscape's outlined in the next national defense strategy, which is great power competition or however you want to describe it. Uh, but China and Russia basically is the essence of that. And so if what you're describing is the dynamic that is in place, then I think it's reasonable to expect that we will see somebody like Bill working in conjunction with Heidi Shu, who was also in the building at the she Army. She was at Army. Correct. Right. She was Army. When, right. right. Exactly. So, And she's the other side of that great divorce in R&E in right. OSD and as Bill would step into ANS if the Senate confers that there's all these moving parts seem to indicate the same thing which is that everybody in all these spots gets that the department needs to move in a different yeah. direction yeah I think when I said interesting I didn't mean to suggest it would be negative I, no, I right, actually right. think the potential to really move something forward is there um, and you think of the, the the challenge that Frank Kendall has at the Air Force when he has the new space command and he's bringing Space Command to acquisition now under Air Force acquisition. It's not going to be separate. Yep. Um, Space Command, if, if you look at the defense authorization bill, if it ever gets passed, there was a provision that there's a provision in the House version uh, that requires Space Command to use commercial items and services. It requires it and says you need to tell us if you don't, uh, which is 180 degrees from where we were, say, five or 10 years ago. Yeah. So I think it's potentially a very exciting time. Uh, I, and I think when you, you said the, the great power competition and the, and the national defense strategy, You've got the immediate threat of, of Russia with Ukraine and other places like that. But in the bigger picture, let's not fool ourselves. I don't care, liberal, conservative, Republican, Democrat. It, it's impossible to find anybody who knows much about what's going on who would not agree with the fact that we're now in a new Cold War with China. And you listen to the Deputy Secretary, Kath Hicks, uh, Secretary Austin, and everybody else. This is the focal point, And it is all about technology and the recognition that as good as our industrial base has been, we need a much broader and much more expansive industrial base. So that potentially opens the door, I think, to, to some interesting changes. All right. Um, I'm going to focus specifically, if Bill is confirmed, on that relationship, too, between acquisition and sustainment, his job, and Heidi Shu's job at research and engineering, because I don't Correct me if I'm wrong. If you think differently, I'd love to hear it. But it seems to me Ellen Lord was very stable and very consistent and did a great job as A&S. 
the R&E job was a, not as stable. I'll just put it that way. There was churn in that office, and there was turmoil in that office uh, throughout the last administration. So we don't really know what a good symbiotic relationship between those two jobs looks like now that they've been separated, do we? It, or did I read it wrong? Well, I, no, I, I think there's some, I think that, that that's fair. I mean, I think it was it was to be expected. I mean, we all focused at the time of the of the split on impacts on jointness and 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 do you really want to give that much control? I mean, from my standpoint, that I really want to see that much control go to the services because each has their own culture and their own priorities, and you really want. I, I wasn't comfortable with necessarily with this with the whole split, and so that was where a lot of the focus was, and less focus was on well, yeah, but what happens inside OSD now. And as you said, there was more churn on the RE side. Ellen was a Ellen Lord was a very um, I hate the term, but as you said, stable presence. I mean she was thoughtful, she was focused, um, and you know she she was just she was and, and that and that didn't exist necessarily on the RE side, but they were going through their own I'm not sure that is an unusual thing to have happen in a major organizational restructuring like we saw. And by point now, I, I think it's pretty well settled out. I think the roles and responsibilities are probably pretty well understood. All of these things, and you know this because you've been covering government for a long time. It doesn't matter what agency you're in, what role you have, what statutory authority you have, what policies you control. So much of this is personality driven. And strong personalities can overcome, overwhelm weaker personalities, regardless of what the statutes say. Um, my impression is... I'm having worked with Heidi Shu and Kendall and all these, I, 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 my sense is that this is a pretty stable group that will figure it out. Um, but again, you've now had several years for it to play out a little bit and folks get a little bit more comfortable with their roles and where they fit. Okay. I um, want to go back to a reference that you brought up that I had not thought of that I didn't remember about Bill's background. And that was his service on the section 809 panel. Um, the Section 809 panel, to me, and the Cyberspace Solarium Commission stand out among those kinds of special organizations over the past maybe 10 or 15 years because so many of the recommendations from both of those panels made it into law really quickly. What do you think that potentially says about Bill's appointment? Is it possible that that's one of the qualifications that brought him to that job in addition to his Air Force experience. And maybe the message from the administration is this is going to, doing that stuff and, and implementing it, executing is going to be really important to us. Uh, so I, I think, yes, the administration wanted somebody, uh, this is just my read. Yes, the administration wanted somebody that had confidence in to execute and to, 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 to make things work even better. Yes to that. I will say, and as you know where I stand on some of the political environment, and I wasn't involved in the campaign, one of the things that was evident that acquisition was not a high priority. And you see sort of with the pace of some of the appointments uh, for the major acquisition jobs around government, I don't know that that degree of thought has been given in the administration because we've got a, we have a global pandemic. Yeah. We have all this other stuff going a on. A few things happening. Inside DOD, but inside DOD, to the extent that Secretary Austin and Kath Hicks had influence over this decision. And as you know, there's always tensions between presidential personnel and the agencies. I think your supposition is probably correct. So I, I don't know what charge he comes in with other than the fact that we know this guy, we know he's really smart. We know he did a really good job in the Air Force. We need somebody in there to do this. Will you come back and go do this? Stan, it's great to talk to you as always. Terrific insight. I appreciate it. 
My pleasure. Great to see you, Francis. You can read more about the selection of Bill LaPlante to become the next Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Monday is the next Daily Scoop podcast program. And then coming on Tuesday's show, the Chief Information Officer at the Office of Personnel Management, Guy Cavallo, joins me. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Tuesday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The new telework policy at the Agriculture Department will let eligible employees work out of the office up to eight days every pay period and only come into the office two. The Assistant Secretary for Administration at USDA, Oscar Gonzalez, says details for employees will be, quote, based on the duties of the position. Simone Zickman's Vice President for Client Growth at Maximus. He's former Chief Information Officer at the Commerce Department. Simone, welcome. It's great to talk to you again. What are the infrastructure implications, do you think, of moving to this aggressive of a telework posture if this is something that we see more broadly across government. Welcome. Thank you, Francis. Nice to be here. I appreciate the invitation to come and chat today. Um, you know, I, I'll, I'll say that given the situation we're in now, um, still in the midst of and hopefully eventually on our way out of a, a, a significantly disruptive pandemic situation, from an infrastructure perspective, I, I'd like to hope that the infrastructure to support growing telework is already there. It, uh, we've, we've had, uh, perhaps not across every single organization in the federal government, but at least in as a generality, government-wide, uh, uh, an emergence of almost complete remote work. So I, I don't think there's necessarily a lot that needs to be done from a technology perspective. As I think we're seeing with USDA, uh, with their recent policies being documented, and, and I'm sure other agencies will be doing the same if they haven't already, the, the policy now needs to catch up because what happened with the pandemic was uh, an emergency response to an emergency situation. Now, as people are capable of returning to work, as they do return to work, and there's in some cases an expectation that they will return to work, how does policy now catch up and enable people to work from home more often through telework policies, how does it enable people to work in a fully remote situation, uh, either where their home is their home office or perhaps in a more geographically distributed way where they're not expected to live near the agency that they're working for? So I think it's more of a policy issue than an infrastructure issue. Given that, what do agency leaders need to think about from a policy perspective? The the Agriculture Department's uh, policy, as I read it, is fairly aggressive as I mentioned, folks only have to show up in their uh, at their place of assignment two days out of a pay period. They can work out of the office eight days. That's pretty aggressive, and I wonder what that pretends for how you make that policy and how minute that policy has to be, I guess. Uh, I would say there are probably a, a couple of things that, that I could think of that, that agencies will want to think about. The first is ensuring that there's some equity uh, and fairness in the decisions that are made around who needs to be in the office, who doesn't need to be in the office, and how much do people need to be in the office. And I think the, the USDA policy did already hint at that, talked a little bit about equity and fairness. Um, certainly not, not doing that right is something that could lead to, uh, to some uh, morale issues. 
it, so, so clearly, I think they are thinking about it. It's just a matter of uh, in operations and implementation, they need to make sure that that's addressed. The other thing, though, I think is a little bit of a bigger picture. I think they're very much focused on um, ensuring that things are in accordance or adhering to government regulations and, and policies and, and that type of thing. But I think one thing that's important to also realize is from a people perspective, and especially when some of those people are not government employees today, but they're the government employees of the future, people who will be applying for jobs, working for the government who may want to telework or may want to work remotely. Um, this is, uh, the policies are almost in a way they're rigorous because they have to be in order to be compliant with higher level regulations, but they're almost over-engineered in how they're presented. And what I mean by that is most people don't care about the distinctions between telework and remote work. It's, I want to work at home. And yes, some people might work at home living near an agency and some might not. Some might live in a, a different city, different state. Uh, some people might want to work remotely one day a week, two day a week, three day a week, four days a week, or five days a week. Why is there this strange distinction in policy between four days a week and five days a week? So those of us on the inside understand that there are some important reasons for making those distinctions uh, relating to duty station and whether you're eligible for locality pay based on where your agency is versus where you work from, where your home is. Um, so I understand, and, and many people will understand why these distinctions are being drawn, but I think many people may not understand and don't necessarily care about those distinctions. So I think it's important for the agencies to be aware of the need to present this in a way that just sounds simple and uniform and also makes sense to people who are not government employees. If the technology is where we hope it needs to be, uh, to make this transition, as Renee Wynn said on this program earlier this week, from pandemic to permanent. And if policy is an issue to keep in mind, is governance another aspect to consider or does governance wrap into, fold into the technology and policy pieces, Simone? I think that, I think that they should be and likely will be handled in an integrated fashion because there are certainly dependencies. Uh, the, the, the technical decisions that you make will influence what operationally can be done. The policy decisions that you make may have implications for uh, technical changes that need to be made. So hopefully those will be handled in a, a well-integrated way. Something that you were well aware of uh, at Commerce that I lose sight of from time to time when talking about these things is only 15% of the workforce on average is located in the Washington, D.C. area. Rest of it's outside the Beltway. Any implications there for any of the components that we've talked about, technology, policy, the people aspect, any of that, Simone? Well, I, I think the most fundamental one is that once we, once we move to uh, an organization where we're able to identify which roles can be supported remotely, we no longer have to hire out of a, a workforce pool that is local to the agency. And that's really important because it has workforce implications, it has skills implications, it has cost implications. We can now take certain positions and designate them as eligible for remote work and open them up for anybody to apply for regardless of where they live. And that might mean 
we can hire more quickly because some geographies are less competitive than the local DC area. It's very competitive here. It's hard to find good people. It takes time. Other areas where there's more capacity in the available workforce, we can hire people more quickly. We may be able to find more perfectly matched skill sets. There, there might be in, in some agencies, just to you know, imagine some of the scientific agencies, there are positions where there might be only a handful or only one person who's really the ideal candidate for a position, not, not like a, you know, an IT specialist where there may be thousands of people who could fill that role. And the ability to access the talent wherever it is means we can get people more easily, more quickly. And from a cost perspective, there are geographies in, in the US where the, the cost of labor is lower, the cost of labor, uh, sorry, the cost of living and the cost of labor are both lower. So we can hire people at a lower cost where there, there are localities where we don't have the, the same uh, high pay that we have here in the DC area because of differences in locality pay. And so over time, strategically, there's actually an opportunity to make more large scale um, reshaping of the, the cost of the workforce for a large agency. If we have the technology in place that we have had now going on two years uh, coming in March, is it fair to say that security and identity management are at least mature? Not They're never perfect, I know that, but are those elements of the remote work environment and the infrastructure that's required to do this mature enough to at, at least be at the same level as we were when everybody was in the office? I, I think the technology is there. I, I can't say for sure every agency has implemented to 100% the, the level of controls that they might uh, have in their security plans. Hopefully they have. Um, but what I will say is I wouldn't be surprised if at some point some breach happens that gets headlines. I wouldn't be surprised if there already have been some breaches that haven't gotten headlines, but that they've happened. I think the important thing to remember there, though, is even if we hadn't gone to remote work, there would be breaches of people working on site. There would be breaches of um, on-premises infrastructure or desktops that are sitting on an agency network because the nature of security is that that, that happens. That happens. It's impossible to have perfect security and to avoid those completely. So as long as we're, we're doing the right things from a a risk management perspective and from a security implementation perspective, I don't think that that should be a reason to shy away from uh, from evolving the the model of the future government workforce. Simone Zickman, thanks very much for coming on. It's great to talk to you as always. You too, Francis. Thank you. You can read more about the Agriculture Department's new telework policy in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Monday is the next Daily Scoop podcast. Then on Tuesday, the CIO at OPM, Guy Cavallo, is here. Until then... I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.